yeah, for us, it was, it was just a lot of those, a lot of one-on-one conversations and talking to donors about, I mean, there's one thing to say like donors might have a particular form and frequency that they would like to receive communication from, but even more than that, what are the, what are the pain points that you're facing in your own family? Uh, are you wanting to teach your kids about generosity and service? Can we help you do that? Uh, are there pain points in your business? We have a great network of entrepreneurs and business leaders that support Care for AIDS. Can we help provide experiences or content to help you? Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show we've got Justin Miller, CEO of Care for AIDS. Justin, thanks for making time. Thanks, Jess. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so for people who don't know about Care for AIDS, can you tell us about that and tell us about uh, your new book that's come out? Start there. Yeah, Care for AIDS is the organization that I've been leading for the past 12 years. And very simply put, our, our purpose is to help empower people to live a life beyond AIDS. And I was confronted with the reality of HIV and AIDS on a trip I took to East Africa in 2007 and saw that there was a, a need or an opportunity where I could potentially uh, affect some change in this epidemic. And I teamed up with two Kenyan pastors to launch this organization, uh, which started in a little community on the outskirts of Nairobi in one uh, slum there. And today we have 68 locations across East Africa where we really wanna serve the most vulnerable families that are facing uh, physical and, and social vulnerability because of their HIV status and really strengthening the family, keeping parents alive and thriving so they can raise and educate their kids is critical for us. So the story that we wrote, uh, the book that we wrote, it's called Beyond Blood, Hope and Humanity in the Forgotten Fight Against AIDS. And that was a project that I wrote with my two Kenyan co-founders. And it's really the origin story of Care for AIDS. And it even predates Care for AIDS as we talk about our upbringings and the forces that led us to ultimately begin this organization. I think what's notable about my co-founders is they're from, they're from two very opposing tribes in East Africa. And just the nature of their friendship is, is almost taboo in a Kenyan context. So there's a lot in the story about how three guys, me from an affluent family growing up in the suburbs of Atlanta to two guys who grew up in rural poverty from opposing tribes, how the three of us could possibly come together to create something as impactful as Care for AIDS across a lot of barriers is, is really at the heart of the story and, and really the call for what we hope people will take to heart in this time of division in the world we live in. That's great. And um, I'm guessing besides Amazon, just the Justin T. Miller website is the other best place to get details on the book, right? Absolutely. JustinTMiller.com um, or, or Amazon. Great. And I got to say, it was interesting for me um, when I was on the careforaids.org website, I went to your impact report and uh those stories were interesting because, you know, just not, not being around that issue, you know, proximity wise, um, I hadn't thought about people being in, in AIDS denial or these different things. Can you talk about what your program, like what you guys actually do on the ground? Yeah, definitely. Well, you're, you're not alone. I think most of the world today doesn't understand 
the state of HIV. And that's a big part of what we're passionate about. The fact 1.7 million people roughly contracted it newly last year is lost on most people. But when you get into the particulars of, of each community and each person's story, there's a number of factors that are affecting them. Obviously, there's the managing the physical disease and accessing the treatment that they need. Uh, there's the social stigma and isolation that they face because of their status, which exists to varying degrees across communities. The prospects for them economically, vocationally, are very minimal anyway. And sometimes that's just exacerbated by their feelings of shame or stigma of employers against hiring people with HIV. So, and that's just scratching the surface of how complex of an issue this is. But when we go into a community, we identify either a, a church or a network of churches that we're going to be partnering with in that community. And the local church is, is an amazing opportunity and a, a mechanism to get care to where it's needed most, but it doesn't preclude anyone or exclude anyone from being served in that context. We have people from all faith backgrounds who feel very comfortable coming to the local church to receive, to receive care. And then in that local um, church community there, we have two full-time staff who operate a center there. So we call a, a, a care point and they recruit in most cases, 80 families at one time that will be a cohort of individuals who will go through the program together and they will receive a whole range of services over a period of about nine months. And our hope is to take people who are the most sick, the most isolated, uh, the most vulnerable, and then empower them with the tools that they need to live completely self-sufficient lives and to take care of their families. So the program focuses on five core areas. We look at their physical health, spiritual health, emotional, social, and economic health. And then our services are tailored to address each of those areas. So the services are more focused on counseling, medical interventions, job training, um, and then spiritual care and discipleship for those people that want to, to take advantage of those services and provide. We also provide a lot of nutritional support and training around hygiene and sanitation and things like that, which are critical for, for our clientele. So it's a, it's a lot of different services, but it's our best attempt at being very comprehensive in taking a person who in many cases is, is near death. Um, at least, you know, even if they're not physically near death, oftentimes their status has resulted in them, you know, ideating about suicide or having other, um, other traumatic issues and giving them back to a place where they're completely restored and they're able to, to live a long life. I love it. You know, um, our, our listeners know about the charity we started uh, called Child Rescue that combats child trafficking, uh, child sex trafficking. And to me, one of the most interesting stats, like, you know, you guys have got 67 centers, you've had 17,000 graduates, you've got 194 African staff out there. The one that's really interesting to me is this 50,000 orphans prevented. I want to hear more about that. And I'll just tell you for us, you know, with child trafficking in the U.S., it's extremely tied to holes in the foster care system. Those are the vulnerable kids that are easier to take without the cops coming after you, right? Mm -hmm. Or manipulate or these kind of things. Or And youth homelessness, I mean, it's just, it's almost the same issue. They're so tied together, right? Yeah. And so when we hear about people out there who are preventing kids from getting orphaned, that, that really speaks to me in a huge way. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Yeah, we, I, you know, I, I don't know how many organizations out there are thinking in this way, but 
we, when we started 12 years ago, that was one of the things that stood out to us the most is that there were a lot of organizations that were just trying to help pick up the pieces from these broken families. And whether that was, you know, foster care, adoption, child sponsorship, and man, those organizations are amazing and they have a, a critical place. But we, we just were looking at this issue and, you know, we never will quite maybe fully get back to the root cause of you know what is creating all of these problems but the the breakdown of the family and the death of these parents because of HIV was definitely a place where we could move uh, we could move upstream a little bit and prevent some of this uh, this trauma and hurt that was happening below that because of these kids were being orphaned and so we look at each one of our clients uh, there's across 12 years we've never provided any direct services to children um, but to say that we have not impacted the lives of tens of thousands of children would not be would not be fair because the kids are in our hearts. I mean, those are the we care deeply about those kids, and we think their greatest chance for success is going to be being raised by one or both parents, as opposed to their other options, which, as you said, in, in East Africa could be being on the street, um, being in an orphanage, which in our mind is a last resort. And, and it, sometimes we have to resort to that, but we are starting to learn all of the developmental impacts that orphanages, institutional care are having on children. So to keep children in families um, with, with one or both parents for us is, is critical to uh, beginning to then break the, you know, break the epidemic of HIV, especially if we can help parents talk more openly to their kids about HIV, and, and this issue, which culturally is not something that parents typically want to talk very openly about. Sure. Well, uh, amazing work you do. So, so glad you guys are doing that. So th thank you from us on that. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the work you do too. Well, um, you know, I want to talk about maybe a different aspect of this where we'll, we'll talk about your story, but maybe in context of another way. So so many of our listeners are entrepreneurs or they're the person inside their corporation who's trying to make some real changes, kind of an intrapreneur kind of a thing, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and, you you know, the name of the show, Innovation and Leadership, it attracts a certain audience, right? Sure. So um, I want to talk about getting something like this launched. I mean, the need is obviously huge, but, you know, it'd be pretty easy to stay home in Atlanta and make good money. And, um, you know, I, I guarantee it's rewarding. I, I know it's rewarding mm -hmm. for you. But there's uncertainties, there's so many issues. Can you talk about maybe, um, I want to talk about growing an organization like this and, and maybe in like a little bit of a non-traditional model of, you know, so many, so many nonprofits, they care so much, they've got a good idea, but they can't round the circle of going from caring about somebody else to getting donors and grants to pay to actually help. And, you know, mm -hmm. I was looking at your 990, you guys have, have uh, obviously done better than the vast majority of charities for donations and grants. Um, can you talk about that full circle of having, you know, having the donor or having the grantee have the experience that you guys are the ones they want to support? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, it's been a journey for us. And and I really, I do, I credit so much of this to my, my co-founders who are, who are Kenyan because we really it's a beautiful partnership because those guys have led our East African operations for the past um, 12 years. And the way that I'm wired, I, I'm not a public health expert. I'm not a 
medical professional by training. I'm a guy that studied business and organizational effectiveness and leadership. And that is what I am passionate about. And I love that my work allows me to marry um, thinking about organizational effectiveness and strategy as it applies to how can we mobilize people and resources to support a cause like this. And so I, I feel for some of the leaders of, of nonprofits who, um, who work in the same place as the services they offer and they feel the constant pull of, do I give myself today to the programs of what we do or do I give it to the, 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 the fundraising, the donor development? And I've had the, the great fortune of being able to have two partners in this who can help to lead our East African team and our programs there. And I can focus a little bit more fully on the, the fundraising side. But, but when we started, uh, we did not, uh, I was 19, we started this. So I didn't really have much of a concept of how to raise money. Uh, to the name of this podcast, we tried some very innovative approaches that uh, I think did better than most. But as a college student, we started running textbook drives on college campuses to collect and resell used textbooks so that we could use the proceeds from that to fund our work in East Africa. Um, because I didn't know a lot of people that had a lot of money. I just knew that uh, I had a network of college students and they had these textbooks. And so I think a few years into that, we were raising a couple hundred thousand dollars a year for the work, which for a, for a 20 year old felt like, you know, a ton of money, but quickly realized that that was not going to be the way that we were going to scale this organization. And we began looking at how do we grow support from a major donor perspective and began to think about, which I think a lot of nonprofits miss, but okay, we have, we understand and we know our customer per se in East Africa who are clients living with HIV and AIDS, but do we really know and understand our customer in the US, which is our donor? And what is the, what is the value proposition that we're offering to our donor? And what does it look like for us to be able to create value for donors as opposed to just talking at them in a very um, one-dimensional way where we're just sharing whatever it is we want to share and not really understanding why are the donors supporting Care for AIDS and what can we do to add value yeah, to their life? So what does that look like? Is that one-on-one -on -one interviews? Is that how are you gathering that intel to find out, find out that information? Yeah, for us, it was it was just a lot of those, a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations and talking to donors about, I mean, there's one thing to say, like donors might have a particular form and frequency that they would like to receive communication from, but even more than that, what are the, what are the pain points that you're facing in your own family? Uh, are you wanting to teach your kids about generosity and service? Can we help you do that? Uh, are there pain points in your business? We have a great network of entrepreneurs and business leaders that support Care for AIDS. Can we help? provide experiences or content to help you in your business in some way. Um, and for the money that you're giving to Care for AIDS, we want to make sure that you feel like there's appropriate amount of transparency, that we're reporting to you in the way that you want to, um, that we're recognizing you and thanking you in the way that you want to. And it's just everybody obviously has a whole set of values that they hold and nonprofits don't often take the time to ask or care. And ultimately donors, that's part of the fatigue process is that they're not feeling like there's an appropriate value exchange between their investments they're making in the organization and what the organization is giving back to them. But, but really, isn't that true of all customers? You know, when you think about people who are so excited about some brand and then they later leave it, it is that feeling about the exchange, right? Yeah, and I think it's true. 
I think about the nonprofit world and like we actually have started building, uh, we spent the last year building a real estate investment trust we're about to launch because I'm just not nearly as good at nonprofit fundraising as you. So we're just going to make the money <laughs> running our commercial real estate buildings and take a portion of the profits. Okay. But, but I look at, I look at this space and I look at the successes we have had and I look at those who are much more successful like you guys. And I think, yeah, so many folks from the nonprofit space, we, th there's this tendency to say, well, this is why I care. You should care too. Right. Instead yeah. of really getting into what the personalized version is for these different donors, um, you know, customers, really the donor in many ways is the customer. Right. And like you That's said, right. there's a complete obsession with the cause and we, we know everything about that and we dig into that and we push hard as we can over there and then make these assumptions that by doing that, it will somehow automatically translate into what the customer, the donor was looking for, right? And I love this going the level deeper of what might be going on in the donor's life. Like I had no idea where you're going with that was hey, what's going on with your family? Like, how are you going to teach your kids about generosity? What what can we do there? Like, there's so many in the nonprofit space that feel like, well, they've only got one customer, the cause, you know, the the, people, right. the parents with AIDS who we're trying to keep alive so they can raise their kids and have a happier life, right? Instead of recognizing, no, there's two customers in this transaction, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of admire your level of care there because that kind of going above and beyond, you know, Everybody has reports. Everybody claims to be giving transparency transparency to their donors. But how many of us are really having one-on-ones or actually talking about – how many of us are asking the question, are you getting the transparency you'd like? You know, mm -hmm. we – at least my friends. <laughs> I think so many of us just make assumptions. Well, this is great. I've decided it's great. They, sh they should feel it's great, you know? Um, yeah. And that willingness so to potentially adapt, depending on the answer you get, I could see as a major competitive advantage. It is. And, and I think that one of the things it summed up so well is, as somebody said one time, and I can't remember who, but so there's really no such thing as donor fatigue. It's really donor abuse. I mean, mm. it's, <laughs> and I think that's true to an extent. I mean, and the hard part is too, we, we can do that because we've chosen that our strategy as an organization is to um, not ignore or dismiss smaller donors, but we have really leaned into a lot of the major donor section uh, or category of donors. But I think the same applies for smaller donors. We just haven't quite figured out because you have to build such a robust system and, and technology is helping us do that. But we, we still would love to be able to offer that same level of personalization to smaller donors, but it's easier for us to wrap our arms around, you know, 200 or 300 households of people, as opposed to how do we, how do we replicate this same philosophy and invite 10,000 donors into this? Um, and that's, that's really a sticking point for us because it, it is harder to provide um, the same level of reporting and transparency and experiences and when you're trying to, to do it for the masses, that's but there are organizations that are doing that well. And, um, and we're trying to learn from them. Yeah. I love it. Well, listen, this is great. I want to, I want to dive further into this. Um, yeah. This is probably a good place to stop for, for part one, everybody, please tune back into part two. We're going to be asking Justin more questions about how they've been able to uh, help so many of their fellow humans here on earth. Thanks everyone.